This is Trading Views from the Need to Know podcast with the Wilson Center. We want to tell you the story of trade beyond the headlines. This is what you need to know about trade today, from the local to the global. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast in a series we're doing on trade called Trading Views. Because trade is now more than just economic policy. And really, it's more than just decisions on the mechanics and administration of trading goods and services. It has become a part of foreign policy, too. And nowhere do we see that more evident than in the recent trade war with China. In our last episode, we talked to Roger Porter, CEO of Porter's Tire in Morristown, Tennessee. And we also spoke to Rusty Smith, the president of Ferenta, a dry cleaning equipment manufacturer in the same town. Both of these businessmen have seen tariffs on steel, aluminum, and Chinese goods affect their business. When you get right down and cut it right back to the bone and say, look, this objective isn't working. In my business, if I start something that isn't working, I'm going to pay for it pretty quick. I'm going to have to make adjustments because that ain't working. So I've got to do something. Well, this strategy is not producing the desired effects at our level that I think maybe even the president wanted. I don't really know. But but the consensus by and large is there there really has to be a better way. When you scale back all the, the political partisanship, then uh, there, there's got to be a better way than tariffs is what we're thinking. First of all, all of us business owners and managers, we want fair trade. And we all, if, if unless we've had our head in the sand, we've known for years that it's not total fair trade with China. Their tariffs were much more higher, much higher than our tariffs. We've all known that for many years. So we, we're glad on one respect that we finally have an administration that's saying, no, we need to make this true fair trade. And if you don't lower yours, we're going to increase ours. And that's exactly what the president has done. So we're looking at a long-term benefit. If we can work through this and we can truly get China or whichever company, country to lower their tariffs and make it true free trade, we have the ultimate confidence in our workforce, our workforces, that we can make good products and we can sell all over the world competitively. If you haven't had a chance to take a listen to the first episode in this series, then I suggest you stop right here, find that episode on the front lines of a trade war, and catch up. It is a fascinating look at how those who produce and sell in our economy are dealing with the tariff question. So the U.S. and China have been at each other for a long time. China's ascendancy has caused grumbling on the right and on the left for decades now. And for years, there has always been a concern that China, even though it has been granted access into the World Trade Organization, even though it should be playing by the established rules of the road, is in fact skirting those rules when it suits them. This is not really a partisan issue. So when President Trump took office in 2017, he set about addressing some of these long-held grievances. As some of his predecessors had done, he placed tariffs on Chinese goods, as well as steel and aluminum. The Chinese responded on items such as agricultural goods. And here the situation has remained until late December 2019, when the administration announced a so-called Phase 1 deal with China, which maybe will be signed within the next week or so from this recording. So in this episode, 
We're going to hear from some Wilson Center experts about this phase one deal, what to expect, and the prospects for a phase two. So September 1 is the big date. Up first is Shioko Goto, who is a senior associate in the Wilson Center's Asia program. On September 1, um, the United States uh, said that it would impose additional tariffs on clothes and shoes to the tune of 15%. And that is actually now going to be reduced to about 7.5% or half of that rate. Mm -hmm. And then it had also said that from September, it would begin um, levying um, a 15% tariff on about $160 billion worth of goods, especially in key technology sectors. And that's on hold for now. But everything that's been imposed before September 1 to the tune of about $250 billion at a rate of about 25%, that stays in place. Did you catch that? Only the tariffs that were set to be imposed after September 1 are affected by this phase one deal. The tariffs we talked about in our last episode, worldwide steel and aluminum tariffs and tariffs on Chinese goods that were set prior to September 1st, 2019, they will remain. Steel, aluminum, washing machines, solar panels, all of those things, they still stay in place. But the technology stuff and the shoe stuff, so the things that you and I actually buy, the things that make us think twice about, do I really need that new pair of shoes or do I really need that Apple Watch? Those things will be protected from American tariffs on Chinese goods for now. But the bigger stuff, the things that the American economy has been resilient about, that still stays in place. All this does is it does not put the tariffs on $160 billion in imports that we had said would go into effect on December 15th. That's Robert Daly, the director of the Kissinger Institute at the Wilson Center. Those are postponed. And then the September tariffs, uh, which were the third tranche of tariffs, those are cut from 15% to 7.5%. But there's still up to 25% tariffs on $360 billion, which goes back to March 2018, which includes the steel and aluminum. So after two years of a trade war with the Chinese, what does this phase one deal actually get us? That's the question I posed to our experts. And the answer was a little hard to nail down. First, here's Shihoko Goto. Well, we have, we've seen reports of it. We've seen also the two-page fact sheet that USTR has released. We have also, um, I know Lighthizer has met with some key journalists and stuff to, to talk about it as well. Uh, we do know that there are a number of um, parts to it. One, the most interesting part, I guess, is the promise of the United States, um, China actually buying U.S. products. And so um, that's an interesting development. There is also uh, mention of intellectual property and strengthening intellectual property um, ending technology transfer, limiting technology transfer, and opening up the Chinese market to the U.S. financial sector. All these good things. But again, we don't know how they're going to be doing it. Um, what we do know, though, from the U.S. side is that um, because the Chinese are promising to buy goods from the United States to the tune of around $200 billion, they, Washington is prepared to have a ceasefire on tariffs. 
and Robert Daly. So what, what does this really mean remains to be seen. And to say that the phase one deal is a great victory for the United States because now American farmers can sell to China again, the only reason they stopped selling is because of the trade war that we started and that which China took retaliatory steps for. So what are we, how are we really supposed to understand this remains an open question on many fronts. And here's Abraham Denmark, the director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center. I'd, I'd want to take a step back and look at how these negotiations started, how the trade war started, that one of the main arguments that the American officials put forward in imposing all these tariffs was that there were structural problems in how China was trading international trade in terms of intellectual property, in terms of technology transfer, market access, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that these, uh, these tariffs were put in place in order to build leverage for the United States to force the Chinese to make structural changes. And what we're seeing is that um, we're instead taking away these tariffs uh, and allowing for the more structural issues to be pushed off into the future, which is what the Chinese always want to do. Okay. So some tariffs from September and ones that were going to go into effect in December are taken down. China has agreed to increase its level of agricultural purchases from the United States, and the Chinese have agreed to talking more about its structural economic issues that concern the U.S., namely its investment and interventions into its own economy. But our experts seem to think that this is a pie-in-the-sky notion. China will do anything on these issues until they're good and ready. And since they could run out the clock on any U.S. administration, they don't feel as much external pressure to address those issues. If you're a regular listener to the Need to Know podcast, you may remember a previous episode where Robert Daly said, There is no phase two. Here's the thing. There's no phase two. Everything that we, we speak of phase two, phase three, deals with what are sometimes called the structural issues, the way that the Chinese government supports the economy. Those issues are very real. I'm not, the administration was right to push them. These are, these are serious issues, and America should push. But those things happen only when Xi Jinping decides for his own domestic political interests, economic interests, that it is time for China to re-embrace reform. And so those issues are best seen not through a phase two of the trade deal lens. That's the wrong lens. The right lens is, does China get back on the path to economic reform on its own terms? So if there's a phase one, that's it. This is to put this stuff under the rug, to take China off the front headlines and for the administration to focus on other issues, if other American constituencies will let it do that. But there were phase two, phase three at this point look to me largely illusory. To my mind, the Chinese are always happy to negotiate on, on issues of mutual interest. That's Asia Program Director Abe Denmark again. Um, and they'll, they will negotiate until the end of time. Um, they operate on a very different political calendar than we do. Xi Jinping, as you may recall, uh, adjusted the Chinese constitution so that he can be uh, general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party for as long as he likes, as long as uh, the people don't kick him out. Um, the, the other elites in the Chinese Communist Party. And so um, they, I think we should expect for more negotiations to happen. But whether that actually translates into practical, significant structural changes to the Chinese economy, I, I would not hold your breath for that. I think that if China were to make significant structural changes to its economy, to its approach to technology, market access, it will be primarily driven by internal domestic requirements rather than demands from the outside. 
And Robert points out something interesting about the agricultural promises made in phase one. So obviously, if because of this deal, American farmers are able to sell widely to China, then that is fantastic news for the American agricultural sector uh, and for the American heartland. So that's that's a very good thing if they have these markets opened up. But we may have overreached a little bit in that we are claiming that China will, over the next two years, buy twice as much in agricultural, in, in dollar figures, twice as many agricultural commodities as it ever bought even at the high point before the trade war had come into effect. So this raises a couple of questions. One is, can we produce that much? Because when we sold then $26 billion in agricultural goods to China, the price per bushel of soybeans and of wheat and corn was much higher. The prices have fallen a lot. So to meet a dollar figure that is twice the high point means considerably more than twice the volume of goods. There's a limit on what we can produce. So if we are in fact going to sell all of that to China, this means that we don't sell it to other countries. What will those other countries do? They will buy these commodities from places like Brazil, which have been selling to China. That is to say, we're going to take the total dollar amount that we've been selling to the world and sell it all to China, and then Brazil and Argentina and others will sell to the rest of the world. Well, this is just a, a reshuffling of the chairs, right? The same amount of commodities are still being sold. And they have said, interestingly, uh, very clearly, whatever the number is, whether it's $32 billion, $40 billion, $50 billion, China has said that it would increase its purchases of American agricultural commodities in accordance with market needs and WTO rules. Those are pretty big caveats. In other words, we'll buy what we need. Furthermore, uh, we're doing this on the basis of what is called managed trade. The United States, and especially the Republican Party, has been all about promoting free trade. That's why we speak of setting up all of these free trade agreements. Well, free trade is based on maximizing the impact of market forces, supply and demand. What we're agreeing to with China is not that. It's quotas. You will buy this amount. Well, if they're going to meet that, that's a big if. It means that they won't be buying from other nations, many of which are our partners and allies. So they're going to be losing some of their market. So we are distorting global markets, potentially. We're potentially harming other countries. And this is, again, not to say I'm not glad American farmers don't get to sell, but it distorts market prices. And as soon as you start to do that in one sector, it tends to have trickle over effects into other sectors. We were talking earlier about you know, the problem of steel. And then if you've got an American company that makes a certain finished product or machine that relies on imported steel and aluminum, they're heavily tariffed, whereas finished machines that compete with them can be imported into the United States at much lower WTO tariff rates. So as soon as you go for managed trade and you start monkeying with free trade and you start pulling those threads out of the carpet, the whole thing tends to unravel. And again, we're now advocating managed trade, not free trade. There's some skepticism there over what the U.S. stands to gain from this deal and whether we will actually realize the changes that we set out to achieve two years ago. So what happened? Trump began with the notion that any deficit, trade deficit uh, is wrong and must be attacked. And that is not in accordance with the theory of trade. The theory of trade says that any nation's overall trade balance with the entire world ideally 
should be at zero. It should be balanced out. But that admits the possibility of having surpluses with some nations and deficits with the other. It was never part of the theory of trade that your trade with every single nation is balanced. So Trump began with that. Uh, he was largely wrong. But then he began to talk more and more, as, as did Ambassador Lighthizer and other people, about what really are the structural issues in U.S.-China trade and economic relations, which are overdue for an overhaul along the lines that we've already described. Chinese economy isn't very open. Uh, there are all sorts of non-tariff barriers. It's not reciprocal. There are problems with intellectual property, uh, with limits on foreign ownership in China, although those were shifting anyway, with the treatment of intellectual property in China, still a major problem, but it was shifting anyway in China and getting better even before the trade war. But then there was always a, this problem of China's support for state-owned enterprises. Those are the real issues. President Trump has promised numerous times that he would only do a big deal that solved all of that. He's now backed off and taken a Chinese-style deal of precisely the sort that his predecessors always took. Why did he do this? On October 8th, uh, Larry Kudlow brought a couple of outside economists to the White House, and there was a meeting with Trump. This is, this is per a Wall Street Journal report. And these economists can, seem to have convinced the president that further tariffs could be recessionary, which could hurt his case for re-election based on a strong economy. And that even if they weren't recessionary, the continuation of tariffs at the current levels, plus the addition of the December 15th tariffs, which would have included things like iPhones you know, from China, those tariffs would make it impossible to deny. I mean, it's really always been impossible to deny that the tariffs were hurting Americans. It's about $88 billion is the amount that American importers uh, have paid in tariffs since the trade war. In addition to that $88 billion, uh, the government has paid about $28 billion to American farmers to compensate them for the loss of their markets in China. So that's $116 billion. Uh, that erases all of the purchases that China is said to make during the first year of this two-year deal, even if it comes about. And from that point on, about the beginning of October, it's been clear that Trump was committed to making some kind of deal that would result in this not coming about. The other pieces that stand out to me, one is the role of uh, domestic politics in all this, in that um, when these negotiations started, there was a lot of debate about uh, which side was under more domestic pressure. Uh, the, the, the United States, uh, with its predictable and transparent political process, or the Chinese with their more opaque process, understanding, though, that Xi Jinping was under a lot of pressure um, because of a slowing economy. And what it seems to me is that the United States blinked first. Um, because of our political calendar, I think, the Chinese see that uh, the president didn't want um, a trade war hanging over him as he got into the re-election re campaign. And so I think many in China, from my understanding, uh, see this as a bit of a white flag of trying to, let's put this to the side, let's let trade happen, um, we'll put the harder issues off for, uh, for a few years, and just allow things to, to go, allow the trade war to be on pause a little bit. The other point to remember is that a lot of President Trump's critique of trade policy with China were not new or unique. I was actually recently listening to remarks by President Obama talking about China. And a lot of the issues that President Trump raised were also issues that President Obama raised in terms of market access, in terms of technology transfer, in terms of the trade deficit. Um, so the issues themselves have been around for quite a long time. And there's a reason why the Chinese have made promises on these issues before is because American presidents have raised them before. Um, so the president 
uh, and his team seemed to argue that they had a more hard-nosed approach that was going to get results this time. Um, we haven't really seen that yet, but I think these structural issues are not going to go away regardless of who becomes president next. As is often said, negotiations are give and take, and compromises don't always yield win-win situations. But I hope these two episodes on the China trade war have made you think about the context and consequences of trade policy. Like and subscribe for more, because we'll be taking a new look at a different trade topic in our next episode. This episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Jones. Music was also composed by me. Special thanks to Roger Porter of Porter's Tire and Rusty Smith of Forenta LP for their interviews. Thank you to Linda Roth for her guidance, John Tyler and Sharona Harris for their support in the studio, Anya Prusa voiced our introduction, Ashley Mira provided research assistance, our logo was designed by Paige Rotunda. Thank you to Robert Daly, Abraham Denmark, and Shihoko Goto for their expertise on trade. Thank you for listening, and this is Need to Know.